There's a popular phrase, and I thought of it because last night Houston won. Keep your eye on the ball. Keep your eye on the ball. Of course, we know that means don't lose focus. Don't get distracted. And for the first 300 years after Christ, there was little distraction for Christian witness. Under persecution, the word of God flourished, and the faithful were added in great numbers. We saw in Acts, we saw the ministry of the apostles, and for the next 1,200 years after that, however, the church did not keep its eye on the ball. It grew in politics. It grew in power. It grew in authority over people, but not necessarily because of God's word. Today we explore what happened in Christianity when we didn't keep the eye on the ball after Christianity became legal until the time of the Reformation. It's important for us and it affects us because we live in this history. We live as a part of Christ's church, which is a continuation from year zero until now. It's necessary to understand what led to the organized church that we have today and how it affects God's mission as we do it and understand it today. As we look at rediscovering God's mission for our congregation, we've been looking at the development of the early church and the mission mandate, go and make disciples. We saw that Christ went to seek the lost, and the apostles went to seek the lost, and his mandate was and is, go and make disciples. We have seen that the structure and the organization of the church early at that time always took form around that proclamation. Go and make disciples was first, and the church grew in the structure around that. The structure didn't come first, the word going out came first. As the apostles went out, they appointed elders. Wherever they went around through the, the different seas, or even as far as India or Spain, as we saw a few Sundays ago, they left elders in charge of the faithful that they left behind. And then we saw where deacons came into the picture because they grew so large they needed to attend to the needs of the faithful who were there and to reach out into the community as well. So we saw even within the first 20 years of the church the need for elders, meaning preachers. We saw prophets, meaning preachers, those who shared beyond what the apostles did yet with no structure. And we saw that the key to this was offerings of the congregations to help out not only the apostles' mission, but also congregations that were suffering because of famine or persecution, and the prayers of each congregation, where Paul asked them to pray so that he could boldly preach even in prison. We saw they went to the Jews first. It was natural to go to the synagogues. That's where all the disciples grew up. That's where they knew that the Messiah should and would be received because everyone was waiting for him. But they met what? Persecution. They were thrown out of the synagogues. 
Even Paul himself went into synagogues to get and stir up the Christians who became faithful in the synagogue so that the Jews would throw him out. Paul persecuted the church. But then we also saw that our Lord appeared to Paul and took him and chose him specifically as a bridge builder so that he would go not just to the Jews but also to the Gentiles because Paul was a Roman citizen. Romans didn't meet in synagogues. The Romans and the Greeks had their own temples, their own pagan worship. So talking about the law of Moses, talking about things that were Jewish, just didn't matter. We saw that in Acts as well. That was the first problem. Can Gentiles who are not circumcised become Christians? Well, yes, they can, because the Holy Spirit was poured out on them and Paul and Silas testified what was going on in Antioch. And the Jerusalem church said, well then, go ahead, they're Christians. Peter later, in a dream, is chosen by God to go to Macedonia. Preaching to an unclean, or unclean person in the church. They met in homes. They met in synagogues. They met out in the streets or in the, the forest area. Any place where they could. But persecution was the major problem for the apostles and the faithful. Persecution for the first 300 years of the existence of the church was the price for becoming a Christian. Was the price for carrying that hope of Christ in you. Paul knew what it was to persecute, and he knew what it was to be persecuted. I dug up a little bit of historical testimony about Christian persecution, what some of the early Roman authors said. One of these authors' names was Pliny. He was a naval officer in Rome, naval officer to Vespasian, one of the emperors of Rome who persecuted the church. And he lived about between 23 and 97 AD. He had a formula for working with Christians. He says, they asked if the accused individuals were Christians. And he gave those who answered in the affirmative a chance to recant. And offered those who denied or recanted a chance to prove their sincerity to Caesar by making a sacrifice to the Roman gods and swearing by the emperor's genius. And those who persisted in their belief of Christ were executed. And then Arius Antoninus, who was a military campaign leader, confronted a group of uh, Christians and they made themselves voluntary martyrs. I guess they knew what was coming. At any rate, he sent off a few to be executed and simply snapped at the rest. If you want to die, you wretches, you can go and use ropes or jump over the cliffs. The worst part of the persecution came between 303 and 312. So we're talking 300 years that Jews and Christ, believing Jews and Gentile Christians alike were persecuted. Governors were given direct edicts from the emperor to burn Christian materials, destroy meeting places, 
when they found them to execute Christians for their beliefs who did not refuse to go back and recant. Uh, they lost their legal rights as well if they were Roman citizens. Later, it was ordered that Christian clergy be arrested and that all inhabitants of the empire sacrifice to the Roman gods. So the level of persecution experienced by any community of Christians still depended on how they were saw themselves as threatening the Roman Empire. Christianity was thought to be a superstition. The Romans did not like superstition. It brought bad luck. They worshipped a convicted criminal who was imprisoned. They refused to swear by the emperor's genius. They harshly criticized Rome in their holy books and their sermons and suspiciously conducted their rites in private, even eating flesh and blood were the rumors surrounding the Christians at that time because they couldn't go public. But it was under persecution that God's word was heard and faith grew. Not being able to meet publicly, Christians in Rome developed the catacombs, which I'm sure you all heard, where they met, where they were to run away from Roman soldiers pursuing them, where they buried the faithful dead, where they met in services, tunnels, amazing, under the city of Rome. They also, when they would meet someone who was suspected of being a Christian, and this is where we get our ichthus symbol from, is that they would make a line with their foot in some fashion, and the other person would also make a line with their foot in some fashion, therefore forming a fish, which is ichthus in Greek and means God's son, Savior. It was the only way that they could assure that they were not going to be persecuted. The conditions under which God's word went out during these first 300 years is important. But what happened between 300 and 1500 is even more so important to rediscover our mission in God's church. So how was the church organized back then? In the first 300 years, they developed practices, traditions, some teachings specific to different areas. We saw on a map where the apostles went to all different areas. But there was no interaction between the faithful in those areas because they couldn't have a conference. They couldn't congregate. So traditions developed. Different teachings that were very cultural developed, not necessarily anti-Christian, but the Christians in Damascus in Syria were different than those in Jerusalem, were different than those in Ethiopia and Alexandria and Egypt and Rome. What was their Bible? What did they use as their teaching authority? Well, even though they didn't have the New Testament from the start, we do have the letters that the apostles sent. We hear Paul talking to Timothy today. Do your service duties. Minister. Preach the word. He encouraged individuals, all the apostles encouraged individuals, encouraged congregations, and these letters were passed around within the territories and regions. They put it on the Xerox machine and they'd make copies of it. Okay, some of you are listening. 
They didn't have Xerox machines because they didn't have electricity. That's the only reason that they didn't have Xerox machines. They hand copied them. They hand copied them. And these formed the whole basis for what we know today as the New Testament. Because as the apostles wrote, Christian communities kept these letters in secret places, in jars of clay, in caves, underground, in the catacombs. Later, in monasteries that were found as well. And so we have a consensus of New Testament material written by the apostles. They kept them in scriptorums, scripture libraries. And then the earliest type of books that were seen as catechisms date from 125 years. Each region had sort of a catechism procedure that they went through to bring new members, if we want to call them that, into the church. But you know what? The apostles were getting old. The apostles were becoming martyred. The apostles were dying off. And the Christian church, and the particular problem in Thessalonia was, well, Christ is supposed to be coming back. We're going to sit on this hillside and wait for him. When's he coming back? They didn't expect generations and generations and generations to follow that Christ would come back before that happened. Well, they're aging They're imprisoned. So this was one problem. But as the elders who were appointed by Paul also appointed other elders and deacons and the church grew. So you start with Paul. Remember that Prell commercial, I think it was? I tell someone and those people tell someone and then they just multiplied on this. What was that? Prell? I don't know. It was some shampoo commercial. All right. So the apostles have elders and they have deacons in the first community, but then those communities multiply and they reach other places as well. So you have, for example, me appointing Dirk, who also then appoints Tim and and Lee and Tom, and then those people as well. So in 300 years, we have a pretty healthy underground system of leadership. But all the time, there's always temptation to false teaching. So how do we know that Dirk is teaching the truth? Because he was taught by me, Paul. And how do we know that Lee is teaching? Because he was taught by Dirk. And how do we know that Tom Sr. is because he was taught by Lee? Get the idea? That's how the succession of leadership took place in the first 300 years, and it's called apostolic succession today. So that continued and went on 300 years. Since there was no organization or, co- or conferences, they had to have their head elder or overseer, and overseer, by the way, is called bishop. Get an idea? Bishop means overseer. So in the early church, even though they didn't call them bishops as we know them today, they were overseers. They watched for the correct doctrine. They watched that this was the teaching of Christ and the apostles. They searched the scripture and the letters and the gospels that were written by then. 
And we see the first sign of what happened. Remember when we were talking about the elders and the deacons in the book of Acts and the apostles laid their hands on them and blessed them. And that is what we have as ordination. That they were assigned the specific duty by the apostle to go and preach, to go and preach and teach and make disciples and to serve. The laying on of hands legitimized the ministry publicly for those who were there and saw that. The same way in a marriage, people come and testify to the fact, yes, they got married and they are a husband and a wife. This laid the basis for the political church within 300 years, but they were still underground. Now, the church became legal in the year 320. By the year 320, Constantine of Rome was granted a victory in a battle. He said that he had seen the vision of Christ and that when he won the battle, it was because of Christ, and now the church is legal. The church is legal. It does not have to worry about persecution. It does not have to worry about idol worship that they are forced into, and they no longer have to conduct everything in secret. They can all come together now. The bishop or the overseer in Damascus or in Jerusalem or in Rome or in Constantinople or in Alexandria and Egypt, all these people can come together now, and that's what they did. Temptation always lurks. Temptation always lurks and we struggle with God. We see it in the Old Testament lesson for today. Jacob wrestles with God, and his name is now turned into Israel, he who fights with God. And we either recognize temptation, or we don't. And the temptation is always to get away from God's word. In the Old Testament, in Genesis, It was the devil who caused them to doubt in God's word. And so we didn't keep the eye on the ball when we became legal. As the center of Rome was the center of political power under the emperor, so the bishop of Rome became the overarching bishop of all the bishops throughout Christendom. Today we know him as the Pope, the Bishop of Rome. Everything went through the Bishop of Rome. All decisions and conferences and councils were made, and the Bishop of Rome was the one responsible. And his power grew to be equal to that of emperor, so by the time the kings in the 1200s, even in the 800s, they had to be appointed by the Bishop of Rome in order to be emperor, of the Holy Roman Empire. What was the temptation? What changed the center of God's mission? It was no longer in God's word. It was in a person. It was in the person of the clergy. It was in the person of the Pope. It was in the person of the bishop. This temptation is always among us for me to selfishly take precedence over God's word. 
Remember when Jesus sent out the disciples, the 12 and then the 72, they came back saying, what? Guess what? Even the spirits obey us. And Jesus says, don't rejoice in that, but that your names are written in heaven, in the book of life. And then James and John, the mom comes up, you know, well, when you come into your kingdom, can my son sit on the right hand and the left hand side of you? What are we interested in? We're interested in power, wealth, recognition, authority. And that's the temptation that came into the church when it was legalized because while it was persecuted, their focus had to be on the hope that was given through God's word. It had to be placed in God and not in a person. After legalization, we had the church becoming the saving factor. Anybody who became a member of the church was saved. Not faith in Jesus Christ, obedience to the church, obedience to the bishop. Not only that, but anybody who would baptize the Lord's Supper, preach, had to follow that succession that we were talking about before. Lee couldn't preach, couldn't baptize, couldn't, be, couldn't do the Lord's Supper if he was not, what's the word? Ordained. Meaning, if he was out of succession with Peter, then his elder, then the other elders, then the other elders, then the other elder for the first 300. He had to be able to trace that succession because the power of affecting baptism or preaching of the Lord's Supper was me, the priest, because I got the power from him who got the power from him who got the power from him who got the power from St. Paul. So the temptation was now focused on me. The foundation of the church became political. Submission to the bishop. Declaration of his proclamation as being infallible. To where we get to the, 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 the pope being the vicar or the representative of Christ here on earth. The shift from persecution to legalization for the church meant a shift from the authority of faith and hope in God's word to the faith and hope in an institution. It made us become members of the church, but not people who went out to save others, because that was only done by the hierarchy. People went to church, they sat, they saw the Mass, which was the crucifixion of Christ, the bloodless crucifixion of Christ. They went to confession. And they went home and they hoped that through their membership in the church, they were saved. If a priest was caught in the fact that he was not ordained in that succession, everything that he did was invalid. Salvation was not through that person. So everybody within the congregations or parishes between those years 300 and the future had to be sure that their priest had an indelible character, meaning that they were in the continuation of that succession. Temptation to power and authority continues today. 
it's not just institutional, it continues in all of us. There are pastors today can abuse power in the church. There are power and, and wealth and political corruption within church bodies, within synods. Instead of focusing on God's word to conduct ministry and go out and save the lost, if we're concerned with ourself only, that's temptation. If we're the priority in the ministry, that's temptation. The other is a priority in the ministry. Large congregations go through this too. Large congregations sort of regenerate and continue to grow. But many times it's not by reaching out. I don't know if you knew this, and I think unless I'm drastically wrong, please correct me. But when this congregation was worshiping 250 or so, I guess, from what I hear, most of it was transfer. How many new Christians came in during that period of time? Now, I'm not faulting grace. I'm just saying that when congregations grow large, sometimes they, they get the word out is not the priority, but rather the things that are going on within the culture of the church, the groups, the Bible studies, the fun times, which are part of the fellowship of God's people. But it's when churches start to lose members that they ask, what can we do to become larger again? Which is the wrong question as we brought up before. What do we need to do to get God's word out is the principal question to add people to his kingdom and thereby people welcomed in our fellowship. Today our church, Grace Lutheran, we remind ourselves of the focus on God's word we need to remember that we, as a family of God, go out, show his love, show his, his word of Christ to others, not being complacent, not merely being a member, not being content merely with who we are and that we have faith right, but rather take God at his word in the face of persecution today to give a witness for him with all whom we know and whatever way that we can show God's love to them. Because they are persecuted by sin and death and the power of Satan, as long as they do not know Christ as their Savior. May God give us strength as we redirect and rediscover his mission, and keep only his word as our focus. In Christ's name, amen. If you're interested in knowing more about Jesus Christ or about Grace Lutheran Church, please go to www.gracealoneonline.org. You can email us at gracealoneonline at gmail.com.